You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. If you have a Bible with you, would you open up to Genesis? The book of Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to move a little bit further than one verse today. So, Genesis chapter 1, as we are entering again, uh, walking into this book, we're going to be walking through it over the next probably year or so. Um, Mind you, we are probably going to take a few breaks along the way. It's a big book to be hanging out in for a long time, but we do want to go through it verse by verse so that we can have all of what God has for his people about him. And so you're probably going to see us for up to chapter 11 and then probably taking a break. And we've got some ideas for that into the New Testament again. But for now, this is where we are. We are in the very, very beginning of all things, the very beginning of creation. And uh, what we studied last week as we just kind of, we kind of just tickled the edge of this book, the beginning of this incredible book called Genesis, and uh, we approached it with anticipation. We approached it with excitement. And we also approached this book with the weight of privilege for what it is, the privilege we have to have this in our hands, just to be able to open the very word of God and the very first words of God to us and to hear from the only true God, the creator of the universe, as he speaks to his creation, his people. And he lays the foundation of everything we need to know. In order for what? In order for us to know him, to love him, to live for him, to worship him forever. As the first verse of of the scriptures says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Our God stands at the very beginning before anything was anything, even before time And says in the beginning, as we studied last week, basically saying, I created it all. It was me. And we know as well as we open the New Testament, part of the triune Godhead is Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity. He testified himself to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And John's gospel also declared all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Friends, the answer to our greatest, most crucial, and even the most provocative questions are found in our creator God, who started it all from nothing, who began it with the word of his power, and we embrace it with such incredible wonder because of the reality of who he is. A world in, in which a huge portion of this world's population today has other ideas of our beginnings. They don't hold to the idea of a creator God who started it from nothing. A huge portion of our population has no room in their hearts for this kind of understanding, no room in their hearts for a divine beginning, no room for a divine creator of all things. In fact, they have no room for God. As Carl Sagan so famously said, he said, the cosmos is all that is, or was, or ever will be. It's not the reality of evidence that causes a person to reject what God himself so clearly and plainly revealed. No, it's it's a rebellious heart that rejects God who so lovingly and sovereignly speaks to his creation and says to you, you're not alone. Friends, you're not a mass of accidental atoms. You're not merely stardust. No, you have a divine beginning. You have a divine God. You have a divine purpose in God because in the beginning God Now, as we just dipped our toes into the creation story last week, just like one verse, like I said from the outset, you and I are going to need a large dose of intellectual humility. We need to have hearts that are full of spiritual receptivity 
And we're going to have to study with careful hermeneutical accuracy. That's just how to understand the Bible. And so we need to know what it meant then in order for us to know how to apply it now. And we remember at the, at the reception of this book, uh, there is an original audience, right? There is an original hearer of this book, and that original audience would have been the Israelites in the wilderness with Moses, right? Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. And his people, God's people, are in the wilderness with him, and they're fresh out of pagan captivity in Egypt. And they're heading towards a pagan land of Canaan. So from one pagan country going into another pagan land, their promised land. And what they needed to survive and thrive amidst a, a flood of surrounding ideologies and philosophies and false understandings, what they needed most was a foundation for who the true God really is. Their God. The only God. And friends, don't we need that more than ever today? We really do. And so God starts out by revealing himself. And he reveals himself as the one and only true God who created the whole universe. In a time when there were so many confusing myths going on, accounts of creation going on, which is the same thing that we're facing today, one such myth that the Israelites were facing came from a Babylonian script. I think I've got a picture of the tablets there. This is a Babylonian, uh, the tablets of the Enuma Elish, where in that story there are two gods, Absu and Tiamat, and these two gods gave birth to many other gods. And from those, many other gods came until the god Marduk eventually comes and then as you look at this, this, this myth, the, the, this god Marduk ultimately starts a conflict within the whole pantheon of gods. And Marduk ultimately goes to battle with Tiamat and he ends up killing her by crushing her head. And then he goes about splitting her body into, in half into two pieces. He takes one half of her body and he makes the heavens and he takes the other half and he makes the earth. That's some of the stuff that they're going to face in this, in this land and in the years to come. Now along with these violent Babylonian myths, there were also many Egyptian myths that we even talked about last week. The Israelites would have been very well aware of that after spending so many years in captivity in Egypt. And through these myths, uh, creation came about through some kind of divine uh, sexual procreation. There was even some very you know, disgusting accounts of this that are not worth sharing here. And there was many other tales as well as a lot of violence which brought forth the earth that there was gods of chaos and, and god of water and the god, gods of the sun and the stars and the planets. There's also a, a story of a God creating human beings just because he was tired of working. And he needed slaves to do his work for him. So to be sure, friends, what the Israelites were hearing here in the first chapter of Genesis was such a stark contrast to the pagan cultural accounts all around them. As this God of Genesis was not a God who needed anything or anyone, he didn't have to go about his creative act in some kind of perverted evil. But this God creates everything out of nothing. And through it, he reveals himself as an absolutely powerful, sovereign, and benevolent God. He starkly stands out as pure and holy and good amidst a background of such disgusting, disturbing, violent, and chaotic mythologies. Friends, the same thing is going on today. It may not be mythologies from Babylon or Egypt, but this is going on within our governments, within our education systems, within the intellectually elite, and what's being called science, and it does the exact same thing as these disturbing mythologies do, coming up with all kinds of fanciful, far-fetched, irrational, and illogical theories for our beginnings, and they're being sold as fact. 
And again, it's all being done for the purpose of trying to explain the reason for existence apart from a true and living God, the God of Scripture. But the truth is that in all of it, just as it was for the Israelites then, God still stands out today, and he shines even more brighter amidst the darkest culture around us. He stands as brighter and and more glorious and pure against this growing evil backdrop that we are witnessing as the world is coming up with all kinds of meaningless alternatives. So again, friends, we as God's people need to embrace our foundations. We talked about that last week. And we embrace our foundations as found in the clear, plain, profound revelation of God about himself here in Genesis. And friends, the point of it all is to be in awe. The point of it all is to be in awe. The reason this this is so incredible is because we have an incredible God. And so as we're going to see today, through this six-day creation account, is that God is worthy of our awe and worship as we witness his divine creative character. He's introducing himself and he's showing you he is the real, true, and living God in every way. And so as we are going to study this, let's look at Genesis chapter 1 and we're going to go verses 2 to 26. I know that seems like a pretty long chunk. We're going to be coming back. This is part 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 to 26. In fact, I'll just start in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God sent them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures 
according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come to you, again, wrapped in the righteousness of Christ and filled with your Spirit, we ask for you to illuminate your word to us. As many have scrutinized this text, as many have tried to remove you from the picture, Lord, we want to see you. We want to see you as revealed in your word and as you so boldly and clearly reveal here in the six-day creation account. Lord, what we see is so full of you. And so as we desire you and, and, and seek you, we pray that you would continually transform us into your image, even as we just read, just get a glimpse into you creating us in your image. Today, fashion us more into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we read this and study this and behold it, that we would just be in awe that we would be in awe of who you are, our holy, righteous, creator, God, who from even before the beginning had a plan to save us. We pray all this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So, friends, this section is fully loaded. Word for word, it is jam-packed with content. There's so much astronomical, profound significance in here, it just feels like you can't even plumb the depths. This teaches us so much about what God has done. But even more so, it, it shows us the wonder and the glory and the power of our creating God. A God who alone, as we were singing, is worthy of all of our praise. A God that deserves every one of our absolute devotion and submission and awe. Because of what this reveals about him. And the first thing that we're going to witness about him as we're studying this, and we're going to focus largely on the first three days here. The first thing we notice here is his creative passion. We're going to look through the six days and see some of these repeating things that are being said. But what we see first is his creative passion. In verse 2, we need to arrive at a place of being in awe of his preeminent readiness. And so as verse 1 last week was an introductory statement that declares to the outer edges of the galaxy, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2, then, then time travels us back to the very beginning moment, that very anticipating moment where the very preeminent, creative, and ready character of God is about to act, where the main character and the ultimate protagonist of this book and all of history is about to create. And what we see and what we hear here in this opening scene, in, in verse 2, it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, you need to try to just picture that as much as you can, right, with your greatest imagination, Picture nothing but the Spirit of, of God himself hovering over this, this formless emptiness, hovering over what he is about to create with such anticipated, supreme readiness as he is about to open his mouth and do exactly what he stated he was going to do in verse 1, to create the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, right? That's everything from the microscopic to the macroscopic. 
from what we can't see and, and what we can see through the most powerful microscopes to what we can see and cannot see through the most powerful telescopes. That means all of it, friends. All of it is just waiting to come out of God and all he has to do in this anticipated hovering moment is to merely speak. That's your God. So try to picture that if you can. Try to picture that in your mind. Picture the very personal, powerful spirit of God hovering, so willing, so ready, about to create everything that is. And as you picture that, you have to be asking yourself, what is going on here? Why is this taking place? Why is he doing this? Why is he so ready? Well, as we get this ancient glimpse into the very moment before everything springs forth from God, what we see God showing us here first is that it's just him plus nothing. It's just him, friends, plus, plus nothing. God didn't need any other gods. God didn't need any help. God didn't need anything at all. No, the mathematical formula for how all of this begins is that God plus nothing is everything. God plus nothing equals everything. Well, how do we know that? Well, the text says here, the earth was without form. Tohu in the Hebrew means formless. It really means no form. It means void. And the word bohu means empty. Empty like a vacuum. Empty like waste. So tobu wabohu implies that the earth did not exist yet. It, it lacked order. But this was about to take place in these next six days. The creation lacked content. This was also going to take place in the next six days. And so we have God here alone, and he's explaining what wasn't there. He's explaining what wasn't there in order to contrast what was about to be there. Because the formlessness that he's speaking about is about to take form in the next three days. And then the emptiness that he's speaking about is about to be filled over the last three days of creation. So Tobu Abohu speaks of the contents from which the Lord made the earth, which, biblically speaking, friends, is nothing. In the Latin, it's expressed as ex nihilo, means out of nothing. Hebrews 11, 3 in the New Testament says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It was made out of nothing. Now as the text goes on to say that this darkness was over the face of the deep, darkness here, friends, again is, is painting a picture of nothingness. Because when you think about it, what is darkness? Darkness isn't a thing. Darkness is just the absence of something, which is what? It's the absence of light. So again, these are just more descriptions of the nothingness before there was something. He's contrasting that the somethingness of light that is about to be created came from nothingness. And then we see that this, this, this darkness is also over the face of the deep, over the face of the abyss. Again, what this is speaking about is, a, is a, like, like, like a massive hole of nothingness, emptiness. Hebrew literature is often using this word as the bottom of the ocean where humanity cannot exist. Life cannot exist if you're, if you're a human. In fact, Jonah used this word to describe the, the waters that he was under as he, he went to the bottom of the ocean. So what we're seeing here, friends, is a snapshot. It's a portrait of God getting after the work of creation. And it's pointing forward 
to the waters he, he was going to work and separate on day two. He's emphasizing again that it's, it's just all of him, what he's about to create. And he's using language to tell you what's not there. You ever try to tell a kid that there's nothing there? How, what kind of words are you going to use to tell them about nothingness? And so we see here, the earth, but we see it as nothing, right? It's not there yet. We see him starting with some waters. This is the beginning of what he is creating, the snapshot. And he's about to create the whole universe and the billions of stars and galaxies and life. But what we see right now, we just see readiness. He's hovering over his creation that is about to be. So this is a statement of his personal, powerful purpose. We see him introduce himself to us in the first verse, right? You open the door, there's God, the first verse. I'm here, I created it, I created all of it. Next picture in verse two, he's standing over it, hovering over it. Such personal, powerful purpose, so ready. So again, as you try to picture all of this in your mind, it's, it's impossible to picture it, but try This should always bring the thoughts again of why, what for, why is he doing this? And I think something that's helpful that the Lord gave us here, the terminology of the Spirit of God is helpful for us. Notice it doesn't just say God, like from from verse 1, Elohim. No, it says here the Spirit of God. Spirit, ruah, right? Elohim, Ruah Elohim, Spirit of God. This is the wind of God. This is the breath of God. Friends, as we know from John chapter 1, as it shows us that all things are created through Christ, we also see here from the very beginning Elohim creating the heavens and the earth, but we also see the Spirit of God, this majestic God, The word in the plural here at the start with Elohim speaks of majesty. It speaks of of a God in light of a world of false gods, but but he is contained as as what we're seeing here, even a, a beginning picture of a triune God from the very beginning. In fact, the first word for God in Genesis, Elohim, like I said, is found in the plural form supporting this. We also know that if you fast forward to when God makes man in verse 26, what does it say? Look down to verse 26. It says, let us, in the plural, make man in our image. Again, this is giving us insight that there's there's something going on here. Now, Moses, as he's writing this, being divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is, this is exalted history going on here that as he's writing, he's even writing in that moment greater than he knows. We're seeing a, a plural God, this three God in one, even though Moses may not have been able to articulate that then, we see that there's a plurality of, of God making man in his image. And so as we see spirit of God, we see God revealing himself. And the reason this is important to understand, friends, is because good Trinitarian theology is going to teach you that God has always existed as one God in three persons. One God, but three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what's important to understand that even before the creation, God was perfectly satisfied within himself. He didn't create the universe as if he needed it. He didn't create you and me because he was lonely. Know that song that that often gets sung that, you know, he wouldn't have heaven without you is false. No, being perfectly and infinitely uh, content within himself, God out of his pure, righteous, creative plural motivations hovers over his nothingness and creates all of the universe for his glory alone. He creates it all for his purpose alone. That as we witness him so ready, so preeminent, and so supreme over his creation, we're getting a glimpse into our creator who is a God with such creative passion. 
Creative passion for what? Creative passion for his own preeminent glory. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Friends, what, what God with his creative passion is creating here is a great cosmic temple. The universe is a great cosmic temple for God alone to receive glory. And then through that great cosmic temple, as he's going to create it, he's revealing more of himself. Psalm 50 verse 6 says, The heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. Romans 1.20, as we read last week, says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since when? Ever since the creation of the world. In what? In the things that have been made. So what? So they were without excuse, friends. We are without excuse. So friends, what we're going to see over and over again in the book of Genesis is that it's all about him. We are not the center of this book. We are not the center of the universe. God is. It's all about his glory. So friends, the Israelites then needed to have a bigger view of their God in light of so many myths. He wasn't just a God amidst a bunch of other gods. No, it's only him. They needed a bigger view of God. And friends, you and I need a bigger view of God today. We need to be smaller. He needs to be bigger. And that's what the purpose of Genesis is about, especially right here. To be in in awe of our great and glorious God. And so as we're also living in confusing days like the Israelites were, Paul says in Acts 17, 24 to 25, he says, for the God who made the world and, and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Friends, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need this universe. It was purely created out of creative passion for his own glory so that he could reveal himself through it all and through you. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And so as verse 2 gives us insight into his creative passion, we're seeing his character coming out here. Friends, we need to be in awe of him. Be in awe of his preeminent readiness to even create anything. To create the world. And to create us. But how does he do it? Well, as we just read the six days of creation, how many days does he do it in? Six. And how does he do that? He does it just by speaking. Friends, in these six days of creation that we are going to witness, next, if we, if we honestly and, and humbly and receptively just listen to what God has for us here, trusting that all Scripture is sufficient for us to understand our God, if we, if we approach this text and we remove the noise and the myth of our, and the worldly ideas that are attacking it, next, we cannot but behold his, his creative power. We need to behold his creative power. We need to be in awe of his omnipotent, all-powerful speech. Friends, as it all begins with just God and nothingness, The difference from nothingness to everythingness comes forth not by some war between some far-fetched gods, not by some procreation between some other gods. It doesn't come from God just stumbling upon some pre-existing matter. It doesn't come from some dust being spewed out from some imploding star, billions of years of random failures and chance. No, friends, it comes about by the only true God merely opening his mouth and speaking. So friends, 10 times in Genesis chapter 1, Moses recounts the, the words here, and God said. 
So look down in your Bibles to verse 3. It says on day one, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Look down to verse 6. On the second day, it says, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Look now down to verse 9. On the third day, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And then on that same third day, as God begins to, to, to work with this filling of this form word, formed world, in verse 11, it says again, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. It goes on to talk about the seeds of all of that. Then we go down to the fourth day, as God creates the sun, moon, and stars. And in verse 4, it says, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven. And then we have on the fifth day, as God is filling the oceans and the sky and the waters above and the waters below, notice again, it says in verse 20, and God said. And then on the sixth day, as God then fills the formed dry land, it says, and God said, let, bring, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And even with, with the forming of the pinnacle of his, of his creation, which is mankind meant to reflect his image, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 28, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And even you go down to verse 29, it says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. So what are we seeing, friends? How did God create this? Ten times, and God said. And then notice that whatever God says, the text says it was so. The text doesn't say and God said, this is just the spark that's going to begin the whole process of evolution. It doesn't say that God says to an already existing molecule, now you go multiply yourself. I got other things to do. And then from here on out, just keep multiplying yourself and go make something of yourself. No. It doesn't say, and God said, I will make one organism from which all organisms will sprout and they're going to mutate and evolve and figure out how to survive on their own. No, the text says, and God said, and it was so. Vegetation according to its kind, verse 11 to 12. Water creatures and the birds according to their kinds in verse 21. The land animals, according to their kinds in verse 24 and 25. Again, all according to their kinds. Friends, this is absolute calculated power and accuracy. What God says happens. And again, it happens from nothing. Ex nihilo. Friends, when God said, let there be light in verse 3, the text says, and there was light. There's no hesitation here. There's no delay Friends, before that, there was no light. Now, light, for our scientists out here, travels at what speed? Okay, I could barely hear that, but I wrote it. Okay. 299,792 kilometers per second. I can't even fathom that speed. That's 18 million miles a minute. Friends, we can study these things through science, but God set that speed before we knew anything. God set that standard from the very outset. So why does light travel at that exact speed? Because God said. This is not just a general claim, you know, that God just said, well, you know, I think light would be good. No, God set every minute detail and function of light. This is light that is going to be vital for life amidst a backdrop of darkness. Light that one day is going to refract into a brilliant rainbow in the clouds after Noah's flood of judgment. Light that, that as I drink my coffee in the morning, looking to the east through our window as the sun is rising, Reminds me every day of the glory of my creator God. 
reminding me every day of the mercy that he renews upon me every day. And friends, some hypercritics out there try to use this, this light one as a gotcha, right? They try and upset God's testimony of creation as they say, well, how in the world can there be light on day one when the sun, moon, and stars aren't even created till day four? There's got to be something wrong here. This book can't be trusted. Therefore, this God can't be trusted. Well, friends, the answer to that is just simple. As God created light by the power of his word, light itself didn't need the sun. Light didn't need the moon. Light didn't need the stars. No, as God created it, God would be the source of it. Let me ask you, if we believe this in the end, why don't we believe this in the beginning? In the end, as Revelation 22 reveals, after God recreates the new heavens and the new earth, and as Christ takes his rightful place on the throne, Revelation 22.5 says, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. Why? For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. God doesn't need the sun and the moon and the stars for light. We believe it in the end. We can believe it in the beginning. Friends, what God said with such creative, omnipotent power, it was so. The moment that we try to explain this away, or to I try to explain this, this book away as just poetry or, or allegory, is the moment that we begin to try to tear down the glory that is revealed of God by his omnipotent power on display here. Power that God doesn't have to go out and try to find. Power that he doesn't need to fight for. This is the power of who he is. This is the power that he just lets out with absolute power. And it, and it comes just by speaking. As the psalmist says in, in, in Psalm 33, as we read in verse 6 already, it says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Right? Speaking. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Speaking. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. That's the point. Stand in awe of God as you read this. Because he spoke, it says in verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Friends, we, we take far too lightly the creative, omnipotent, power of God through his speech and his words. How do I know that? Well, I know just by examining myself. I take far too lightly God's creative speech when my Bible lies dormant. When I don't open his speech. When I don't open his word. I take it far too lightly when I when I question whether or not God's creative, powerful word could really change that troubled soul. I take it too lightly when I don't memorize his omnipotent, powerful words and just let it out, trusting that it will not return void, that it'll do exactly what he intends, right? That living word that is sharper than any two-edged sword that discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If God's Word so powerfully created new life from the beginning. Friends, we need to take it in and we need to unleash it upon the world. Right? As faith comes through hearing. And hearing by the what? The word of God. God's creative power is still at work today. He is raising souls from the darkest of the deep. He's freeing sinners from the abyss. He's, he's releasing us from the domain of darkness and he's raising us up into his glorious light by the power of his word. For God, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Friends, are you in awe of his omnipotent creative speech? It's the same omnipotent power that created light, and it's the same omnipotent power that made the skies above and the waters below. We see in verse 6, it says here, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. As you look up into the sky on a clear day, and you can even see it today, as you, as you look at that blue sky, remember that behind that blue sky is darkness. As we look up to that glorious blue sky, it is blue because we have an atmosphere. Now, I think you need to talk to the oldest Weens boy. He's going to tell you how that works. Ask him next time. He's a perfect answer. It's a glorious blue sky because of the atmosphere that is above. And this is that same atmosphere that gives us the most glorious of sunrises and sunsets. You see the deep purples and the oranges and and the pinks and the reds. Friend, nobody paints a sky like God. You can't duplicate that in a photo. You can't duplicate that in a painting. I'm convinced it is only something that you can appreciate with just your eyeballs. And that's all because we have the most incredible God. Just think about on the prairies, living in the thunderstorms. Think about the billowing cloud formation. Friends, the skies above proclaim what? They proclaim the glory of God. They proclaim his handiwork. His hands are all over it. And then when you think about the ocean, and you think about the deep cyans and turquoises and the breaking waves of the seas below, friends, you have to just stop and you have to take this stuff in. And when you see it, you need to be in awe of the creative power of God. Then on the third day, God says about the waters, he says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. Friends, in in three days, three days, right, there was evening and there was morning kind of days. Right, the first, second, and third days, those kind of days. These are the same days that we have today. God so powerfully and majestically and sovereignly took what was formless and he formed it all so perfectly, so beautifully, so powerfully. He created light. He separated it from the darkness. He took the sky and the heavens above and he separated them from the seas. And he took the dry land and he separated it from the waters. In just three days, by the absolute power of God, by his word, it was so. And then with that, friends, as as we must continually be in awe of of his omnipotent speech and creative power, we must also notice how God himself responds to it all. Look at how God evaluates his creation. Genesis 1-4, it says, And God saw the light, and it was what? It was good. Look at how he responds to the separation of the seas and the dry land in verse 10. It says, and God saw that it was good. When God brings forth the vegetation and plants and trees according to their kinds, it says again, and God saw that it was good. This is the same with the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars in verse 18. God saw that it was good. When he created the sea creatures and the birds of the air, God saw that it was good. And then we have the land animals God saw that it was good. And then fast forward to verse 31. If you look down there, he creates mankind as the finishing pinnacle of it all. And what does it say? And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So what does God think as he looks upon his creation? It is good. So friends, we need to behold his creative purpose. We need to be in awe of his satisfied response. Friends, what's abundantly clear to the testimony of God's creation, according to the Bible, according to God, is that as he stands back and he takes it all in, all what he's created, all that he has made is good. And in fact, when it's all finished, it's very good. So friends, what we're witnessing here is a God that is so pleased in what he has made. It brought him great pleasure in fact, the, the Hebrew word here, tob, contains pleasantness, that it's, that it's agreeable, 
that it's useful, even that it's beautiful. And even when you look at the etymology of the word good in English, what does the word good mean? It means of God. And so God saw as he was creating He's seen that it was all coming together exactly as he planned it. And, he, and it was absolutely perfectly good. And this ultimately pleased him. And friends, that's exactly what his creation is to be about. His creation is for the purpose of bringing him pleasure. It's meant to please him. And as we examine what he is doing here, And as we remember, you think of God, he's creating this cosmic temple. He's building it for his joy and his pleasure and his worship. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It's all for him. And so as he observes and evaluates it all as good and pleasing, friends, it's only when you and I look upon the whole universe and all of its beauty and we see that it's made for his good pleasure that we can really understand the purpose behind it all. Right? Why is God doing this? Why did he create it all? Why did he create me? He created it all to be good. He created it all to please him. And it's only when that outlook comes upon our lives and it squares with what God thinks in his, in his pleasing state that we can truly understand what all of this is about. That our lives are to be about reflecting his goodness. It's when we truly understand this phenomenon of God's pleasure It's when we truly understand that we're called to live our lives for the satisfaction of the Lord, that we will truly understand the purpose of us and in this universe. What is, God, what is God satisfied with right now? Even think about your own life. Is he looking upon your life right now and seeing it as the goodness he intended to create? Friends, our purpose in light of this, our purpose in this world in light of this creating God who creates and sees it as good, it changes us. This world is no longer about me just getting my needs met. It's not about just me trying to get ahead. It's not even just about me trying to be happy. It's not about me trying to get my own pleasure. No, the right posture of God's creation is to be about his pleasure to be in agreement and in awe about that which God finds great pleasure. And what we see him finding as good and pleasing and beautiful in these six days of creation is that as just six days ago, all that there was was formless and void. What he has by the end of day six is now fully formed and filled. We're going to talk more about the filling next week. But there's this forming and this filling going on. The heavens and the earth. Take a look at this chart here to help you see the beautiful reality of God's, God's good forming and good filling. And what you see here is that the first three days of creation parallels the last three days of creation. In day one, we see him forming light and dark. In day four, we see him filling sun, moon, and stars. On day two, we see him forming the waters in the sky. On day five, we see him filling it with sea creatures and birds. On day three, we see him forming the land and vegetation. And then day six, we see the animals and mankind who are going to live there and consume that. It's all connected. Friends, in just six days, all of it was fully formed and it is perfectly filled exactly how God made it and he sees it as very good. Now, as we remember some of the false pagan creation myths of Egypt and Babylon and Mesopotamia, we remember that they didn't start out as good, nor did they result in good. Now, as these myths often spoke of a universe coming about through hostility and war, 
It wasn't out of good, and it wasn't for good. In fact, it's often spoken of as chaos. And so as the Israelites would be hearing of this good God through Moses and his good creation, they could also know that they could trust this God to take him into the good land, into the land of promise. They could trust that God was for their good and that God does good and he desires goodness from them. He, he desires godliness from them. And this ultimately brings him good pleasure. And friends, this still brings God pleasure today. As we just studied through the book of Philippians, Philippians taught us that growing in Christ brings God pleasure. Philippians 2.13. Again, this is the creating work of God in you. For it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. As it was all for his pleasure then, it's still about his pleasure now. Even though Genesis 3 happens, even though by Genesis 3 what God created as good is about to be tarnished, even though what God saw as beautiful was about to be stained, what was fully pleasing to God and particularly rebellious humanity as it comes about is, is going to bring him displeasure. As mankind is going to be tempted and rebel, and they're going to question his very goodness. They're going to question his very decree. They're going to question the goodness of what he has created to the point that humanity has the fall. That which was, once was only life would now become toil. Which was good and beautiful now uh, results in suffering and death. That which was perfectly fruitful would soon have thorns and weeds. That which was perfectly good would soon be cursed and judged. Friends, we're going to get to this story in the weeks to come. We're going to see what all went wrong. But the fact that in these first six days that we see what is so good and pleasing and beautiful to God, we get to taste why he had to go to such lengths, the lengths that he would go for our for the redemption of our sin. Why he had to judge so harshly. Why he had to ultimately send himself to save us from ourselves for our good. The restoration of all things. Perfection restored. Pleasing goodness to God. Friends, let's be in awe of God's satisfied response in his creation. And we should let that inform and drive our hearts and our love and our obedience forward to what he will one day do. Because he's coming back to recreate it all. And he's going to recreate it all in perfect, beautiful, harmonious goodness forever. And then a fourth observation about the, the character of God is his creative possession. We need to be in awe of his rightful ownership. In the first three days of creation, we see God powerfully speaking creation into existence. It was so. And then we see him observing and evaluating his creation as good. But then we also see another amazing, insightful, and important detail here. That after he speaks and after he evaluates, he also names his creation. In verse 5 it says, God called the light day. In the darkness he called night. And then in verse 8, it says God called the expanse heaven. In verse 10, God calls the dry land earth. And the waters that are gathered together, he called seas. Friends, in ancient culture, and also in biblical culture, the act of naming speaks of sovereignty. It speaks of rule. It speaks of ownership. It was the, only the kings and the rulers who named the places and the cities and the conquered lands. Naming here is an act of sovereign dominion over it all. And so again, if you go back to the context of Genesis about God revealing himself through Moses to his exi uh, exiled people who are facing a world of all kinds of false influences, he says, in the face of a world that is making up all kinds of myths, all kinds of false gods, 
Right? They're, they're, they're claiming all kinds of gods of light and water and land, sun gods and, and moon gods and star gods. What God is saying through his naming here is that not only did I make it all, but I am sovereign over it all. I own it all. In fact, in the Babylonian creation myth, back to that Enuma Elish, when the author was stating that nothing existed in this Babylonian myth, it's interesting what the author said. He said that nothing existed and nothing was named. Friends, to be a creator is to also name what you create. You know, just think about being a kid playing in the sandbox or playing with your Legos, building your Legos, or, or, or your imagination kingdoms when you're a kid. Right? You would name those places. You name those objects, and you own them, right? Friends, to create is to own. It's the same thing when somebody invents something new right now. If you invent something, you go out and you get a patent for it, and you name your invention because you don't want anybody else to claim that invention as theirs. No, friends, the act of naming is speaking of God's creative possession. He has rightful ownership over all of his creation. The Psalms sing about this all the time. The earth is whose? The earth is the Lord's. Psalm 89.11 says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Deuteronomy 10.14, Behold to the Lord your God be, belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. God owns it all. God says in Psalm 50 verse 10 to 11, for, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in, moves in the field is mine. I own it. I made it. Friends, all the earth and universe obeys the voice of its creator because it's owned by its creator. He made it, he named it, he owns it, period. And friends, ownership means he can do with it as he pleases. In fact, we are going to study the story of Noah in the weeks to come. We're going to study the world after the fall, that it was only evil all the time. We're going to study that God sovereignly chooses to destroy everything on earth and start again through one family and through an ark full of animals. Why? Because he's God. Because he owns it. Friends, if he didn't make it and own it, he wouldn't care. But he does. So friends, the question is, is do you think that you are your own? Or does God have every right over you? Do you think that you're free to run and rebel and get away with anything? No, friends, God owns it all. God owns you. He created you for his glory. And so as the story of redemption is going to unfold before us here in the book of Genesis, we see God not only naming his creation, but we also see him naming his people, right? When you think about Abram, he was renamed to the name Abraham, right? He's going to be a father of a multitude. Even with his wife, Sarai, she becomes Sarah, the mother of all nations. And then we also see Jacob himself being given the name Israel. And then you fast forward to Jesus Christ calling his disciples. You see him giving them new names as well. You see Simon becoming Peter. You see Saul becoming Paul because God names his creation. It speaks so powerfully of his possession over it and his sovereign plans to rule it. And so, friends, this afternoon, it doesn't matter where you came from. Regardless of what you believe as true, whatever religion you have been brought up with, whatever side of the world you grew up in, whatever worldview that you hold to, God has absolute sovereign ownership over you because he made you. But the question that naturally pours from this is, are you his creation? Are you his new creation? Have you been reborn? 
like Peter or Paul, do you have a new name in Jesus Christ? Have you been made new? Friends, the name Christian means little Christ. It means follower of Christ. If you are a Christian, friends, God has given you a new name. If you have turned from your old sinful ways, your old sinful namesake, right? If you are found in Adam, you can have a new name in Jesus Christ, being a Christian, by believing and receiving him as your Lord, or as, his, as our Lord, our creator, and divine owner of your life. If you are his, friends, again, you have a, a new name in Christ. You have a new, a new purpose. You have a, a whole new direction. It's no longer you who live, Regulation says, but it's Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son, in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, for us. The same one who created the universe. And friends, there is so much more to see, so much more to be in awe of in God in these six days of creation. We're going to focus a lot more on that next week in the, in, the, in the last three days. But today as we focused largely on the forming of his, crea- his creation, next week we're going to focus on the filling of his creation. Friends, the creation points forward to the new creation. The beginning points forward to the end. Christ is coming back. He is actually going to destroy this whole universe one more time. And he's going to recreate the new heavens and the earth. And Revelation even talks about you getting a white stone with a new name on it. God has revealed himself so powerfully. We see his creative passion, his creative power, his creative purpose, his creative possession. Friends, his creation needs to respond by being in awe. I need to be more in awe of this God. You need to be more in awe of this God. This world needs to hear about this God. Let's be in awe of his preeminent readiness. Let's be in awe of his omnipotent speech. Let's be in awe of his satisfied response. And let's be in awe of his rightful ownership over all of it and over us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we can't even comprehend all of this as we're just looking at portions and pieces of what you are revealing in the perfection of what you have written down, the sufficiency of what you have written through Moses to your people. We have a hard time even just trying to comprehend what's going on here. But we know that you have given us enough. What you have given us is sufficient. Your word is clear and plain and powerful and living and active. And as we look just as at this creation of even just these first three days, we just, we just stand in awe of who you are. And then in that, we stand in awe that, that, that you would even be mindful of man. That in light of all your power and your majesty, and even in light of all your self-contentedness within your triune nature, that you would even create us, and that even as we rebelled against you, you would even come and seek and save us. So Father, we stand in awe. God, we stand in awe. We lift you up in our hearts, and we pray that you would continually transform us in awe of who you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.